The following message is presented by First Baptist Church in Manny, Louisiana. For more information, go to the website www.fbcmany.org. Now the message. You know what oxymorons are, right? Words or phrases that are used together that are total opposites. Well, you probably have some favorites. Let me jar your memory. Bittersweet. Jumbo shrimp. A dead live oak. Some would say army intelligence. Working vacation. Deafening silence. Good grief. Sweet Heart, old news. Ever heard those? Plastic silverware. Small crowd. Going nowhere. Rolling stop. Wise fool. Pretty ugly. Dead church. Is it possible for church to die? I don't know of anything more difficult to deal with than death in the family. A loved one. I started pastoring back in the dark ages, 1970. In 53 years, I've been called upon to conduct different kinds of funerals for all kinds of people. I looked in the casket of tiny babies, children, teenagers, some killed in automobile accidents, some suicide. I've looked in the faces of young adults and Senior adults, I've faced the sorrow of parents and spouses and grandparents. And I felt with them the loss that they were experiencing as well. Can anything be worse than that? From God's perspective, perhaps... Perhaps worse than any kind of physical death, regardless of the cause, I think the death of a church would grieve the Lord more than the death of any individual. Is it possible for a church to die? What kinds of churches die? Is there any hope of revival, of revitalization? Is there any hope at all for a resurrection of that church? I certainly don't have all the answers, but I do know that Jesus wrote a letter to a church that he himself described as dead. Maybe we study the church at Sardis, and we might learn some lessons as well from what Jesus told that church. While you're turning in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, we'll read the first six verses in just a moment. Let me give you a little bit of information about the city of Sardis. 
It was a capital of one of the great Lydian provinces a long time ago. And I understand it was a commercial center because five major roads came and intersected there, so they had traffic and commerce from all over the Roman Empire. They were known for a lot of things. One, the river that ran just below where the city was located was full of gold. You may remember that one of their kings was Croesus. Is that the way you say his name? To be as rich as Croesus. Everything he touched turned to gold. Well, it's because there was so much gold there that the city was very rich. They had other industries. They had a dyeing industry uh, where they dyed wool. But the important thing about this church is that it was situated probably 1,500 feet above the river valley that flowed uh, beneath it. And it was almost impregnable. In fact, they thought that there would never be anybody that could conquer that city because of its location. High up on a plateau. But do you know twice in their history, once Cyrus, the king of Persia, led his army against them, and they encircled the whole mountain where uh, the uh, people of Sardis lived, and they were watching and waiting for some kind of way to get into the city. And one of the the soldiers happened to be looking up, and he saw the helmet of a soldier from the top of the mountain, the guy from Sardis, and it fell down and rolled to the bottom. And this soldier from Persia watched that soldier as he made his way down the cracks, apparently, in the rocks of the mountain. And he retrieved his helmet and went back up. And that soldier took a band of soldiers with him that night, and they retraced the trail that this soldier from Sardis had made, and they went into the city, caught it completely unguarded because they thought they were impregnable, and they conquered the city twice in their history. So when Jesus is going to say to them, watch, I'm going to come at a time in the night that you do not know that I'm coming, they would trace that back to their history because that had happened to them in their history twice. Jesus talks to them and us about some things in this that I want you to hear. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 begin like this. And to the angel of the church at Sardis write, These things says he who has seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief that you do not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will blot out his name. I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says 
to the churches. As I look at this passage of Scripture, like we have with so many other, other churches, I want to mention, first of all, the one who's writing the letter or sending the letter, the messenger himself. Notice what he says about himself. I am the one with seven spirits. What do you think that means? Most of you have done enough Bible study to know that the word seven is the number of completion. I think this is the Lord saying, I have all the knowledge and all of the ministry and all of the, uh, of the gifts of the Spirit, the whole Holy Spirit. I, I know what I'm talking about. I know that I am the one who has all knowledge. I am the one who can do everything. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2, you'll find that Isaiah listed about seven things that the Spirit of God would do. And Jesus, I think, is saying to that congregation, You look at me. I am full. I am the Spirit of God. I have everything that I need to do what I need to do. I know what's going on with your life. Then he says, I have the seven stars. You recall that when Jesus talked to John in chapter 1, he talked about the seven lamps that he was in the midst of and the seven stars. And the seven stars were the seven messengers of the church. Many people have wondered about that. I think that he was addressing the pastors of the church. And the picture is that Jesus is still holding the church. He knows what's going on. He is the head of the church. And he's saying to John and through John to this church at Sardis, I have all of the knowledge, I have all the ability of the Holy Spirit, but I also have the churches. I am still the one who directs, the one who calls, the one who ministers to and through the church. It is my church. And any time a church does not have the head, which is not the pastor, nor the deacons, nor the most uh, generous giver, the head of the church is none other than Jesus Christ, and everything that we do ought to come from His direction. Whether you agree with that or not, that's biblical. He is the head of the church. And Jesus is introducing Himself to indicate that He has all that He needs to not only look into the situation with this congregation, but to also prescribe for them what they must do. And so He gives them a message. Look at the message. Normally, we start with compliments. And I had to look a little bit, and you do too, to find compliments for this church. But there are some. He says that there are some who have not defiled their garments. I believe that says that in every situation, in every time, in every church, there are a few remnants of people who are really dedicated to God, regardless of what the masses may do. God always has a Remnant, he has someone that he can depend upon to be faithful. And this church had it. Now they did not have all the other things that other churches were dealing with. Gnosticism and devil worship and the influence of Jezebel. You recall that those kinds of influences were everywhere in some of the other churches. That's not the issue here. These people, most of them, were religious they had their suits and ties and their hats and all of that kind of stuff when they came to church on Sunday or whenever they came. They looked to be prosperous and they were. But Jesus looks at them and He sees beyond the external and He says, though there's a few here here that are doing okay and still love My Word and are obedient to what I want them to do, 
you have a serious problem. So the compliment is very little. We have a few who have not defiled their clothes. Now, I've shared with you at the beginning of this study that I believe that these churches, these seven, are seven literal congregations. You can trace them on a map. They go in a little circle in Asia Minor. But I believe that God was choosing these seven churches not only because they were seven churches that needed to be addressed, but these churches also parallel church history. If you take church history on one hand and and the Bible, these seven churches on the other, you can see how each one of these represent a period of time in history. Let me remind you, we've already talked about this some, but the church at Ephesus lost their first love. This is the first century church. Oh, they were enthusiastic from the day of Pentecost. Toward the end of the first century, they began to lose their enthusiasm for the Lord. Then you have the church at Smyrna. Remember them? That church was a church of suffering. If you study church history, there were ten Roman emperors that were horrible as they treated Christians in the most ungodly kinds of ways. Jesus says to the suffering church, Smyrna, you'll have ten days of suffering. And I believe that that period from the end of the first century to about the first third of the third century... The Christians were thrown to the lion's den. They were thrown in all kinds of crazy situations that the Romans uh, used them for. Sometimes they'd cover their bodies with tar pitch and light them up like street lights. Sometimes they would turn them into uh, an arena with wild animals and those kinds of things. They were tortured and they were persecuted. But that came to an end. About 3.30, one of the Roman emperors named Constantine had a little sympathy toward the Christians. And you may remember the story. He, uh, he saw a vision at night, and it, the vision was a cross. And around the cross were these words, In this sign, conquer. He took that to mean if he would become a Christian and make the country Christian, he would conquer. And so he made all of his soldiers be baptized, and he gave them, a, somebody says, a, about a $50 bonus and all those kind of things. But the problem with that, was that the government then began to control the church. And there was a marriage there. This is the church of Pergamos. They were married to the world. There were some good things that came out of Constantine. Persecution kind of eliminated itself. He had 50 Bibles translated into the language and placed in the churches around the country. But anytime the government runs the churches, you're going to have problems. And so this period of time lasted for a number of years, but the church began to become weaker, weaker, weaker. And finally you come to uh, the dark ages of the church and, uh, and the ugliness that came from a lot of different things. And then you come to the period of the Reformation. This is the period that this church represents. Remember the names of Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and others. I happen to have been blessed by going to a seminary. Uh, one of my church history professors wrote a book. His name is Estep. Uh, the book is the Anabaptist story. And it's the story of what happened during the Reformation. Of Some of these Christian men read the Scripture and saw the truth of the Gospel. And they began to proclaim it and they were persecuted. Let me tell you about two or three of those. One is called um, 
uh, Felix Mantz, M-A-N-T-Z, uh, he was preaching and lots of people coming to know faith in Christ and he was persecuted and his wife also was a faithful follower and uh, the church then was the Roman church and they killed him but they took his wife down to a lake and said, he loves water so much, let's give her water. And they drowned her in that lake. There was another one named Michael Sadler preached preached so powerfully that many people were converted. They arrested him and cut out his tongue and put him in a horse-drawn cart and started him to the site of execution. And the story is that five times they would take red-hot tongs and twist and pull flesh from his body until they got to the site of execution where they killed him. What a horrible thing it was. Then... There was a guy by the name of Hugh Meyer. Many thousands of people were came to Christ through his ministry. He was stoned and killed and burned at the stake. Over and over and over in that period of time, you hear godly men and women who believe so much in the truth of the gospel that they were persecuted for it. And these were they, I think Jesus was referring to, who have come out of, they have not defiled their garments. They are still faithful and following the teaching of Scripture, even though they are persecuted. I think there's always some kinds of remnant in whatever age you want to go where God has people that will stay faithful to Him. And I'm praying that we are part of that remnant. The criticism that you look at in the Scripture, Jesus says you have the appearance of life, but you are dead. What kills a church? How would it appear? Apparently this church had all of the externals that you would need. They had all of the programs that you would want. Yet there was something that was eating the very heart out of this church. And Jesus says, you have the appearance of life, but you are dead. Then he says, I have not found your works to be perfect. And that word perfect does not mean sinless. It means to be complete. You have not done all that I have called upon you to do. Well, what causes a church to die? It may be that ritualism replaces reality in life. Or that we become nonchalant about our commitment to the Lord. We lose our commitment. The commitment to live what the Scripture says. To be obedient to the call of God, to missions. It may be that we do all kinds of things that may look good on the outside, but really there's a vacuum spiritually in our heart. Sometimes it's because we find criticism and can't get along with one another, and the fellowship of the church is pulled apart. You have in your bulletin a little insert. Several weeks ago at our XYZ meeting, Merrill Cummings brought this. And I thought it was appropriate, so 
secretaries put it in the church. Do you see it? What kills the church? No evangelism? Criticize the leaders? Attend infrequently? Refuse to volunteer? Neglect the youth? Complain more than encourage? Stop taking the Bible seriously? Value personal preference over souls? This is not an exhaustive list, but it may be thought-provoking. How are we doing when it comes to keeping our spiritual fires burning? How often do we, as Karen just sang, sit at the feet of Jesus where we can absorb who He is and we can fall deeper in love with Him. We read the Bible, we pray, we worship together, we serve the Lord because He is worthy of our service, worthy of our love. Jesus had much to say about them uh, in the criticism that we have lost all of these kinds of things. And when you and I lose that hunger for the Word of God and the things of God, maybe we are also becoming spiritually sick. He has some commands. Verse 3 says, Remember. Remember what it was like. We did a lot of that last Wednesday night at church, did we not? We remembered I don't want this to be the used to church, do you? We used to have a full choir. We used to have lots of children. We used to go on mission trips. We used to, used to, used to, used to. No, that may be true, but that needs to change. And if we don't get out of the used to and get involved in the ministry that God has called us to now... We're going to be like the church of Sardis. We have the exterior, but he says we are dead spiritually. I've been excited about what I think God is going to do as we continue to work on this idea of revival, revitalization. To be honest, I've been somewhat disappointed that some of you have not participated enough to even come. But we need what God can do and only following what He has to say to us and and we return to the things that He wants us to be and to do will the church ever flourish and become what it ought to be. Not what it used to be, what it ought to be today. Where are we and what does God want us to do? Jesus says to remember those things when the pews were full. Remember those things when we took mission trips. Remember those things. But don't stay there. He says, repent. Ask God's forgiveness for our failure. Then return. That's revival. That's revitalization. That's recommitment of my life. That's saying yes to the Lord today. So he has a compliment or two and some criticisms and some commands. But look at the consequences. The end of verse 3 through verse 5, he says, there's going to be some bad consequences if you don't pay attention and do the remembering and the repenting and the returning. The bad consequence is, I will come as a thief 
in the night. Literally, I will take control and your church will be gone. I will come as a thief. There's some good consequences. If we remember, if we repent, if we return, then he says, you will walk with me in white. I think this is a picture of the robe of righteousness that the Lord's going to give us when we get to heaven. Wouldn't it be beautiful to see and be a part of the throng of millions who have the robe of righteousness? We'll celebrate at the feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. We'll spend eternity there. We will have our name not blotted out of the tree of life or the book of life. And I will confess you before my Father. What's it going to be like when we stand before the judge? I think God the Father can look down at me and say, Bo Owens, you didn't do what I told you to do. You fell into this sin and that sin, and I'd have to say guilty. Then my Lord, the one who saved me, is going to stand up and say, Father, that's true, but I died on the cross for his sins, and I paid for them. And I want him to come in and be with us for eternity. Oh, my. What's God going to say to you on that day? Many of you, a few years ago probably, studied a book written by uh, Tom Rayner entitled The Autopsy of a Deceased Church. You remember that study? Or did you do it? Tom Rayner did research and studied churches, I think of all denominations, hundreds of them, maybe thousands of them. And in that book, he writes an autopsy of a deceased church. What happens when a church dies? What what are the symptoms? And I found in one of the chapters in that book, what he said was shocking to me. In all of the research, he said about 10% of the churches were alive, really on fire for God. Then about... 40% of all the churches showed some signs of spiritual disease, illness. About 40% showed signs of serious spiritual problems. And about 10% were dead. Did you hear that? 10% were healthy. 40% signs of sickness. 40% very sick and 10% dead. I found that quite interesting. And I find it interesting because I wonder if the Lord were writing a letter to this church, what would He say? If He were writing... To you, individually, what would he say? Would he say that you're part of the remnant that still hungers for God? 
wants to serve him, be a part of the ministry, involved in evangelism, involved in outreach, involved in missions and ministry? Or would he say, spiritually, you're not doing too well? No time to read the Bible. No time to gather together and pray. Church attendance is sporadic. Commitment to the Lord is lacking. What would He say to me, to you? What would He say to our church? I read somewhere that few things are more better organized than a cemetery, but there's very little life there. Church can be organized without spiritual life, and that's exactly the situation in Sardis. You have a reputation, Jesus says, of being alive. When I look at you, your very heart, I see that you have some serious spiritual problems. I don't know what the Lord would say to you from this Bible study. But if you're not one of those who you think God is pleased with, what do you do about it? Well, the Lord says, remember, repent, and return. Pride stands in the way of most of us doing anything like that. And yet the head of the church, Jesus Christ Himself, speaks. He speaks clearly to individuals who make up the body of Christ and calls us to a place of commitment. So what will you do with the head of the church? Bow with me for a moment. We're going to sing in a few minutes that hymn of invitation. It says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Maybe it's time for me and you to really turn our eyes upon the Lord. If He calls you to accept Christ as your Savior today, I encourage you to do that. If He calls you to remember and repent and return, I encourage you to do that as well. What would God have us do today? Father, this is a difficult passage of Scripture because... It's so real. Churches all around us struggle with social issues. Many of us have an exterior that we are healthy. We have big budgets. We have programs. But yet, the vitality of serving you seems to be waning. Some of us in our personal life have not really been consistent in our Bible study and prayer and dedication. We rarely come to Bible study and prayer meeting. Lord, we just have slipped back. 
we can remember when it used to be different. That may be a call to repentance. I pray that as we turn our eyes upon the head of the church, Jesus, that we'd not be afraid or too full of pride to do what you've called us to do. So, Lord, have your way in this part of our worship as we stand before you. I pray in Jesus' name. Would you stand? The number is 413 if you need it. The words turn your eyes upon Jesus. If you need to make a public commitment, I'll meet you here at the front to pray with you and guide you. The preceding message was presented by First Baptist Church in Manny, Louisiana. For more information about a relationship with Jesus Christ or about the church, including contact information, go to the website www.fbcmany.org. Thank you for listening, and may God bless you.